on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we have a bit of a fish wrap for you. Well, more than a bit because yesterday was election day and we have some election results to review with you. Let's start, if we might, with Greenfield. This was an unexpected result, at least to the extent of the margin of victory for uh, Jenny DeSorger, who was the challenger to incumbent Mayor Roxanne Wiedegartner. Front page, of course, of the Greenfield Recorder. Above the fold, large headline, half the page of photograph of Jenny DeSorger. DeSorger, victorious, dateline Greenfield. Mayor-elect defeats Wiedegartner, winning every precinct. After years of rising through the ranks of municipal government in Virginia, Jenny DeSorger will serve as the city's fourth mayor with a convincing victory in Tuesday's election. DeSorger defeated incumbent Roxanne Wiedergarten, 3,104 votes to Wiedergartner's 1,144. Those were the unofficial election returns. They are now official. The election included races for city council school committee, board of assessors, and so on. Turnout was 29.6% as of 6 p.m., which we in Massachusetts consider a great victory for democracy. Almost 30% of the people voting in the most contested, hotly contested race in western Massachusetts in this off-year election. We got 30% of the electorate to come out, and we say, yes, democracy is proving its worth and vitality, something that we're going to continue to cover, why we have these off-year elections with tiny turnouts in Springfield, which we'll get to in a moment. The turnout was 19%. And people say, well, that's a lot. It's how to put this not. Buzz, you've had a lot of thoughts to share with us over the past few weeks and months with regard to the race in Greenfield. Your thoughts, your reflections on this result? It's hard not to be uh, surprised, at least... I am not at all surprised at the result. I am surprised at the margin somewhat. It was an overwhelming uh, statement about uh, the unpopularity by those 30% of the registered voters, but uh, which is really a sad commentary, Bill. You're absolutely right. The Boston Globe talked about, let's, can we only do even numbers because... Uh, they, that is elections in even number years. Exactly, because uh, they, they, I think it was 1920, I mean 2021, when there was only 4% in one... Uh, hotly contested race of voters who showed up, registered voters. Four percent of them came in, in an uh, eastern uh, Massachusetts community. But um, in Greenfield, I think that Roxanne Wiedergartner, um, you know, I, I think at her heart, she's a really good person. She just stood by um, the resistance to accept the jury verdict that the Greenfield Police Department and the chief had discriminated against an African American. Officer and and uh, Roxanne wouldn't let go. She she bit like a pit bull. She just stuck by that. And more recently, her tax equity uh, uh, decision to contest giving back money to people who had the equity in their homes stolen. I think she just alienated too many people on the basis of like fairness and you know, social issues. I I'm not sure whether it was a commentary about her management in terms of dollars and cents, but it certainly was, I think, a commentary about her positions on the police department. So, um, Jenny DeSorger, best of luck. She certainly has been around. She's been the chair of the Ways and Means Committee of the City Council, and she's uh, done a lot of other things, including the planning board. So, I, you know, she'll be starting as Greenfield's next mayor, and good luck to her. Yeah, and we will invite her 
uh, to be on the show for Mayor's Monday. I don't know if she'll come. She did not want to be back on the show. We had one, I thought, pretty uh, middle-of-the-road kind of interview with uh, Janita Sorger. Introducing her as a candidate, yeah. Yeah. And she did not want to come back. I know she's done one other radio interview. Uh, I think that as mayor, she really does need to have more of a public presence. She can't go door-to-door on every city uh, issue now. I'm honored, Um, William. I will invite her to be a regular on Mayor's Monday uh, monthly appearance. Great. Uh, And I would note that in addition to the police department, which I think cost uh, uh, Roxanne Wiedegartner dearly in this election and her standing by, I think her friend, the police chief, which was part of it, uh, she was also hurt a lot, as you point out, Buzz, by this tax equity, the taking, uh, which I think just morally and practically offends people that someone in their their community could lose all the equity in their house uh, in some un- fair manner. You owe 10000 in taxes, you have 100000 in equity, and the city takes the $90,000. That's now unconstitutional, according to the Supreme Court. But it was legal for many, many years in Massachusetts, uh, up to the local community if they want to do that. It was totally legal, totally constitutional. It's now unconstitutional. It's not clear uh, whether there'll be retroactive effect of that Supreme Court decision. But for the city of Greenfield said, no, we got the money, we're keeping the money, and there's nothing we can do to make it right or fair. That just offended people. It that, is. That, it- that along with the, school, the decision to reduce school funding, uh, parents are adamant about schools. I think that was the... Uh, really the trifecta of things that brought down the Well, mayor. there might be a fourth. Is there a thing called a quadfecta? There might be a quadfecta, which is her relationship with city council was just acidic. And hopefully, Jenny DeSorger, who's been on the council, uh, hopefully there can be some repair to the, the strains between the mayor's office and the council. Yeah, and now Jenny's going to have to deal with, I think, some really difficult issues. She pretty much on this show said she was going to ask the police chief to resign. She's going to have to put a budget together, which is uh, out of whack, uh, given the funding of the school system. I understand the priority, but where's the money going to come from? She's going to have to make difficult decisions. But for the moment, enjoy the honeymoon. Congratulations, Jenny. And congratulations. Uh, let's take a look at spring. Greenfield, which we were, Dan, you and I were pretty yes. excited for a hot minute last night when the votes were very close. They then widened significantly to give Sarno his next four-year term, 16 years as mayor of Springfield. Your reflections on that on that race? Yeah, well, it ended up uh, being, what, 57-42. Um, I guess I was hoping the machine wouldn't win because I'm, I'm anti-political machines. I feel like they, you know, he's been there 16 years. You'd think that, I think there's a, a feeling of movement of change uh, afoot. Um, he hasn't really been, uh, Dominic Sarno hasn't been challenged the way I think uh, Justin Hurst uh, challenged him, um, really gave him a run for the money. Um, we, we were counting the votes. Um, but Dominic Sarno has a strong base. I don't think that can be denied. I think Springfield voters went out and voted, and they reelected him for another four years. I doubt this is the last we've heard of Justin Hurst. Assuming this investigation into yeah. $10 payments doesn't... Doesn't implicate him. Right. Implicate him. Uh, which, yeah. it, it's a story that doesn't make much sense. Uh, Justin Hurst would not, in my judgment, say, oh, good, we might be able to get 10 or 15 votes if we pay right. $10 apiece. That makes no sense to me. Makes no sense to me. So... Uh, I just want to, before we move on, uh, you guys were here last night, and uh, I just want to applaud you on your fine coverage, WHMP's fine coverage of these local elections. It, it's great that you guys were doing it live with Sarah. Um, Sarah, Sarah Robertson. Robertson. Yeah. Yep. So, and Jim Nash stopped by, too. Jim Nash was really good. Jim yep. Nash as the new Bill Dwight. 
<laughs> yeah, Gil Dino's no been replaced. Yeah, okay. He's the new Jim Nash. <laughs> the new Jim Nash, who, of course, the city council president of Ward 3, city councilor in Northampton, who did not run for uh, re-election this time. And we should say Quaverly. And uh, we should, yes. We should say it, Bill. Go ahead. So, Quaverly won the Ward 3 race. There was a write-in candidate against her, Claudia Lefko, and uh, Quaverly won about three-quarters of the votes in the ward. Yep. So, uh, let's take a look at the front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Elkins Perry win for council at-large posts uh, on school committee go to Agna, Gwen Agna, and Davis. Let me read a couple of sentences. This by Alexander McDougall, the staff writer of the Gazette. A pair of current city councilors, Marissa Elkins and Garrick Perry, swept aside two challengers in Tuesday's municipal election. Elkins, an at-large incumbent, and Perry, Ward 4 councilor, ran for the two at-large positions. There were four candidates, David Murphy and former mayoral candidate, that's a quote, Roy Martin. Uh, Murphy and Martin ran on campaigns critical of the city's budget and, and facing a likely override, as well as ambitious plans to redesign Main Street. Elkins and Perry supported the budget decisions made by the city and its um, upcoming efforts to redesign Main Street. Here's the part. We're going to keep harping on it. Early election results showed more than 4,700 people. That sounds like a lot. More than 4,700 people voted in this year's municipal election or 15% of the city's population, but Growing. that's not 15% of the voters, but it's still a small turnout for a politically active, involved, and I think paying attention electorate. And uh, an impactful election. That there's a lot of, were there any surprises for you, Bill Newman? Uh, no, really not. I th we should point out, of course, that uh, most of the positions that were being uh, elected or up for election in Northampton yesterday were uh, uncontested. The at-large counselor uh, positions were, of course, contested. Four candidates for two spots. Uh, Quaverly Rothenberg in Ward 3, as we just noted, uh, was being uh, challenged by Claudia Lefko as a write-in candidate. Uh, a lot of uncontested city council rates, Stan Moulton in Ward 1, uh, and uh, Deborah Pashtik Clemmer in Ward 2, uh, uh, Jeremy Dubbs in Ward 4, Alex Jarrett in Ward 5, Marianne Labarge in Ward 6, and Rachel Mayoria in Ward 7, all uncontested. There was a contested school committee race for the at-large positions. Aileen Davis and Gwen Agna won and won with very large margins. Uh, Meg Robbins came in third. And then in the Ward 4 school committee race, there was a contest. Michael Stein, who has held the position, uh, and Damian Stewart was the challenger, and Michael Stein won. It was a uh, uh, it wasn't a nail-biter, but it was a certainly a respectable uh, showing by N. Damien Stewart. Uh, a lot of uncontested school committee as well, uh, which I think is uh, not a good reflection on the city. I think people are interested in these positions, and I hope that in the future we will see more contested elections. So the answer, quick answer to your question, no, no surprises that uh, – Garrick Perry and Marissa Elkins won for the at-large uh, positions, which I think were the most significant ones. Uh, and the school committee, uh, Aileen Davis and Gwen Agna, uh, both really highly respected members of the school committee. And I think that their re-election was predictable, although certainly in, when we have no polling, uh, not a given before. Well, Senator vote. Comerford got her wish. These are the two people that she voted for, we know. She announced but, that. So what happened in Amherst? 
Uh, now we turn to our Amherst correspondent, Uh-oh. Dan Torres. Uh-oh. Um, so, uh, well, I'll read just the headline here from the Daily Hampshire Gazette. They said Amherst Forward elected nine of the 13 uh, town councilors. So um, they uh, seem like they had a very good night if they have nine uh, supporters. Nine out of 13? Nine out of 13 that they endorsed got elected. And what that says to me is they had a good night. They had a good turnout. Uh, They have, I guess, in some ways, a political machine in Amherst. It's been an organization that I think many have accused uh, of creating the new form of government, which I know we covered here on WHMP a couple of years back, where it got rid of the town meeting, the select boards, and now created this town council where it appoints uh, a town manager. So I think Amherst Forward... um, is stronger now a little bit, but the progressive uh, coalition of Amherst also got Alicia Walker elected. Progressives um, supported her and other members as well. Um, I don't know how many of the four non-Amherst forward people were supported by progressive Amherst, but either way. um, Was the school fight the determining factor, the determining issue in this election, Dan, in your judgment? I I don't know. You know, I look at the school committee, um, and I kind of know who's supported by Amherst Forward. And so, yeah, three of the, is it six or seven, are supported by Amherst Forward. They're going to have to work together. I mean, I know we create these little groups of like Amherst Forward and Progressive Coalition. In the schools, they're going to have to team up. They don't have, there's no majority there. Was there, there is one in the Was town there council. some decision that you can tell us at this point about what happened for the school committee, which of course suffered through all the resignations, uh, the big fight and public consternation over the protests that had happened, the revelations at the middle school by the Amherst High School uh, newspaper. Uh, that was an enormous story and, and resulted in the resignation of uh, four school committee five. members. Five. Five school committee. Okay. Um, and the question is, did yesterday resolve any of that? Uh, the answer, the short answer is No. I don't think. I think this is going to be an ongoing conversation that's happening. So I'll tell you, Irv Rhodes, Jennifer Shaw, who we've had on twice, um, and newcomers Sarah Marshall, Deborah Leonard, and Bridget Hines were, are, is now the new school committee. Um, and, and look, they, they know each other. Uh, Irv and Jennifer uh, are, have already been on the school committee. There are new people coming onto the school committee. So... I guess in that sense, we, we should all not be surprised by that. New people, people resigned, new people come in. Um, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a mix of between sort of one group, the Amherst Forward, and the more progressive, you know, uh, people's, per, whatever you call it, um, what is it, the progressive, progressive coalition, coalition, coalition of sorry. Yes, so they, there's a split there uh, in the school committee, and they're going to have to work together to uh, deal with the issues in the schools. I mean, I can just quickly mention here that in conversations I've had, uh, there's a, a, a real issue that the school committee will face is the budget. It's coming up. Uh, there is a conversation about deficits that the school faces. Nobody knows the amount, but we will know that in about a month, in early December. So, When we come back, we'll be speaking with Larry Hott, Cool Films, with Emmy Award-winning Florence-based filmmaker Larry Hott right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 
1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build SolarWrite and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday bread euphoria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. At the Northampton-Williamsburg line, there's something in the air. That sourdough crust pizza. Those croissants. Smell that bread. The baguettes. That New York rye. It's euphoria. Bread euphoria. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Welcome back to Talk the Talk, and we welcome back to the show Larry Hott, Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker. We're going to take a break from elections, although we have much more to say about them. Uh, Larry, tell us about film. Give us a distraction, please. Well, this is a this is a, a real distractible film. Okay. Uh, this film is called Thirty Two Sounds. It is an oddball film to be a film because it is a film about sound. Uh, it's a film that was really made for radio, just like my face. <laughs> uh, this is a film by a very accomplished filmmaker, creative filmmaker named Sam Green, in collaboration with uh, what's called an instrumentalist, J.D. Sampson. And this is about the immersive experience of sound. In fact, the opening of this film tells you, go put on your stereo headphones. Right? It says, well, wait. They said, well, wait, go put, on, go put on your headphones. And then they do a curious, very entertaining mix of images and sound, basically, which is one idea. they saying to you, pay attention to what you're listening to. I'm that. trying to pay attention, Larry. Does this film have a story? It doesn't have a story as much as a creative arc, which is trying to let you know. Which is, which is like a story, but different? Yes, it doesn't have a beginning, middle, and end. It goes around in a circle. You keep coming back to some of the same characters. I think if we hear a clip from this film, you get a sense of it. And there are a couple of moments that are silent for you as a listener, but there is always something going on on the screen. But this clip is, is just, for me, I found this one of the most compelling, fascinating, entertaining enjoyable, fun films of the year. All 32 sounds? All 32 sounds in 90 minutes. So let's hear a clip. Hello. Hello and welcome. Welcome to 32 sounds. 
I was sitting at my kitchen table late one night thinking about these tapes. Voicemail messages that I saved over the years. How does a little piece of tape hold a person, make it seem like they're alive? I was wondering why sound has such a strange power. I love this song. Okay, we can cut there. We can cut the silence. We're cutting because what you're seeing on what you're seeing on screen is a deaf performance artist who is signing. And of course, you might wonder in a film about sound, when are they going to talk about deaf people? Of course, they do get to that. Uh, in the clip you heard, they, they said this is a very emotional, powerful experience. And one of the, an example of that in the film is when they start talking about the recording of an extinct bird um, called a moho bracketus, the last recording of this bird, and how the bird was looking, calling out, looking for a mate after its mate had been killed. And it was the last of its species, right? I mean, oh, that's it, really it was sad. gut wrenching. It was gut wrenching, and this is what they are saying: what you can do with sound. Another fantastic interview is with a black political activist who um, is exiled, self-exiled in Cuba uh, because of criminal charges against her for political activism. The United States has been there for most of her life, and the filmmakers go to Cuba and they put headphones on her and they ask her to react to a song, a piece of music they're playing. And she just almost breaks down in tears because this song reminds her so much of her past life in America, mm. right? and that she can't go back. And it's the idea of sound, not only as nostalgia, but sound as a way to affect your life and bring back all kinds of important memories. And then of course, it's the use of silence in sound and one of the greatest examples of that is the famous composer John Cage, whose most famous composition is 4 minutes 33 seconds, where I didn't know there was a clip of this, but they have a clip of his performance where he sits down at a piano, he's got a crowd around him, puts his fingers in place to play, and then does nothing for 4 minutes and 33 seconds. He stands up and everybody applauds. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like those famous paintings that are just white. Let, let me ask you this. Why is it um, uh, what's the word, effective to use a visual medium, right, exactly, to talk about sounds? Why not do it on a podcast? Why not do it on a recording? You know, I was thinking about whether this film would work just audio. Right, because a lot of films have a lot of dialogue and you can imagine what the images are. And there's also uh, an audio track for the blind, which is uh, becoming, it's actually so refined now that there are awards, not only awards for the best audio track for the blind, but in different categories, Dr drama, you know, comedy, et cetera. Um, so there is a, com it's the combination of the visual and the sound. And, but the film doesn't want to get into that because that's in a way almost obvious. That is what, the film-going experience is. But many times during this film, they say, close your eyes. Mm. 
and we will tell you when to open them. Wow. Right? Of course, I don't obey those instructions. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, but there's nothing on the screen when they're doing that. Now, this is an anti-film, right? <laughs> so the filmmaker's really playing with, with the form. Uh, one of the things you heard in the clip was talking about the collection of cassette tapes from answering machines, where the filmmaker finds these cassette tapes from 30 years ago of voices of people who are long gone, family members, leaving messages. And it could, of course, you could imagine how powerful and emotional that is. Well, let me, can I just follow that, yeah. Larry Hott, and ask you, I, I certainly understand once you're told mm. that this is a species that's going extinct and there's a sole surviving member trying to call out for a mate, uh, why that's emotional. But is there anything intrinsic in the sounds that we hear if we don't know the context that it uh, renders, uh, that tickles our emotions? That is, if we're not told that what we're about to hear is... Well, yes. Well, the, one, of the, one of the techniques in the film is they take a, a sound scientist and he has a crash dummy who is a microphone. So the ears of this crash dummy are microphones. And then they, of course, look at the waveforms. And there's, you see a lot of waveforms. What I mean by waveforms is, you know, you've all, you've all seen this. You see it on your computer. You know, you, you see the volume going up and down. And you can break that down into, into different elements. And the, what the film starts to talk about is how the brain interprets sound and how your brain reacts and, how, and the emotional centers in your brain. It, of course, the film knows that if it gets too far into science and I'm telling you to close your eyes, you'll fall asleep. <laughs> so it has to entertain at the same time as inform. And although it doesn't have any kind of narrative arc, you're with the filmmaker on a journey trying to understand the impact of sound. Uh, it has been released in the theaters. It has been voted best film in many festivals. Uh, and it's, I, I'd be surprised if it doesn't come to a, a theater near you soon. Eventually, it'll be, it will be on television, which has one advantage, which is you can sit there with good headphones on and listen to the stereo surround sound of this great documentary film called 32 Sounds. Larry Hart, is there any explanation in the film what inspired it? I mean, it's such an oddball kind of documentary the filmmaker is very uh professional and experienced he is well known for a film about the weather underground uh, and i think it was inspired by his personal experience as a filmmaker of what it's like to work with sound to film uh, when and i had i agree with this filmmaker that that once you've got your story and your images down when you start working with the sound you could go on forever uh, and the, the, one of the key elements and the most expensive elements of filmmaking is the sound mix. Is how I mean, you see the credits in the film uh, for the sound design. I mean, the concept of sound design is it is one of the awards in uh, the the Oscars. You know, the sound editing. Yeah, there is. If it's not the one you see on stage, it's one of the background uh, technical awards. But this is when you're raising money for a film. The one thing that you want to pay for is the sound design, along with color correction, the things that the audience doesn't know about that refine the film and raise it up a level. So I could understand here why this filmmaker, Sam Green, after years of working in film, would say, hey, here's an element of film that is not obvious to the audience, but I'm now fascinated by it, and I want to bring that sense of fascination to the people who look at my films. One quick last question, if I might, Larry. When you're making a film, when other filmmakers are making a film, is the music and the sound something that you want to accentuate, or is it something that you want to have 
disappear because it's so innate and so congruous with what the images are. Well, there's always a tension with the composer. We're always fighting with the composer about the decibel level. The composer always wants the music to be louder, and the filmmaker always wants it to be in the background. So there is that, there is that tension. And the best kind of composers, the best composers know that they have to immerse themselves in the emotion of the film, the timing of the film, and what the director wants. And it's not their film, right? And this is, if you have a good composer, they'll understand that they have to serve the film's needs, not the other way around. Again, the name of the film and where it's available, it's please. It's 32 Sounds. It is in the theaters now, and I'm sure it will be on Netflix and Amazon Prime anytime soon. Larry Hot, thank you so very much. In restless dreams I walked alone Now the streets of cobblestone Neath a halo of a street lamp I turned my collar to the cold and damp When my eyes were stared By the flash of a neon light It split the night This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Ginny DeSorger will be the next mayor of Greenfield after voters overwhelmingly chose to support her over incumbent mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner in yesterday's election. The defining issues of DeSorger's campaign were restoring funding to the school district and addressing racism and mismanagement of the police department. Campaign volunteer and Greenfield political activist Doug Selwyn. The current mayor and city council have really been at odds. I mean, it's been the mayor versus the city council. And my guess is where Ginny's going to start is building on the relationships that she has had with the city council as one of them and really trying to figure out how do we do this together rather than having an adversarial relationship. Disorger received 74% of the vote, winning every city district. She also had the support of most city councilors. Northampton City Councilors Marissa Elkins and Garrick Perry emerged from Tuesday's election victorious in their bids for at-large city council seats over David Murphy and Roy Martin. Many of the ward-based city council races were uncontested, and all those on the ballot were elected. Incumbent at-large school community members Gwen Agna and Aileen Davis won re-election by a large margin. Incumbents also held on to power in Amherst, where several town councilor positions were up for grabs. At-large town councilors Andrew Steinberg, Alicia Walker, and Mandy Haneke all won re-election. The school committee will be seeing some fresh faces as well with Sarah Marshall, Deborah Leonard, and Bridget Hines. Mostly sunny and breezy today, a high of 42 to 46. Clouds quickly increase tonight with a light wintry mix developing after 11 o'clock, an overnight low of 26 to 32. Could be a little slippery here Thursday morning with a light wintry mix of sleet, snow, and freezing rain. We'll warm up above freezing by mid-Thursday morning with scattered rain showers for the rest of the day, a high of 42 to 46, dry and low 50s on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime. 
Where is your pain? In your knees? Hips? Your back? Don't let it sideline you any longer, and don't let them tell you surgery is your only option. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, restoring and repairing damaged joint tissue the natural way, using healing properties from your own body to bring you lasting relief with no drugs and no downtime. QC Kinetics is trusted by patients all over America with 150 clinics nationwide. Get started now so you can live big in 2024. Talk about a great use of your FSA and HSA. Put them to work getting you the relief you need so badly. And again, there are no drugs, no downtime, and no surgery. Call QC Kinetics today for a free consultation. Let their medical professionals give you a better path towards that pain-free life. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Welcome back to the show. Let me share with you the headline on a news release, not immediately in our past, but just recently in August. Dateline, Amherst, the Board of Trustees of the Eric Carle Museum of Picture Book Art in Amherst, Massachusetts, announced today that Jennifer Shantz has been appointed the museum's new executive director, effective September 18, 2023. Shantz will be the museum's third executive director, taking over for Alexandra Kennedy, who is stepping down after 15 years of distinguished leadership. We have with us in the studio today the aforementioned Alexandra Kennedy and the aforementioned Jennifer Shantz. Thank you both for being with us. Let me start by asking you, Alex, why leave? We love you. The community loves you. You've done an amazing job as the executive director of the Eric Carle Museum. Why now? Why leave? And then tell us how lucky we are to have Jennifer Shantz joining the committee. Hey, Bill, you bet. You bet we're lucky to have Jen here. So um, about a year ago, I started really thinking hard about um, making a change wanted to see if I could get another act in. What you want to do when you grow up. I got yeah, exactly. it. I, I understand. I'm still looking. I wanted, I wanted some time to write. Um, a lot of other things I'd like to do. I'd been there 15 years, which is a long time for a museum director. Uh, the first museum director, Nick Clark, likes to tease me that I have beat all the odds. So by being there for 15 years, surviving 15 years as an executive director. So I was ready, and, um, and we just needed to find somebody really great to come in and take over. And I can't tell you how excited I was when I heard that Jen Chance had applied. We, um, Jen and I knew each other. Uh, she had been at the New York Historical Society for a number of years, and she and I had negotiated contracts together. I went back and looked at all of our emails to each other, trying to remember everything I could, and I was like, oh, it would be amazing if we could get her. Wow. So it was a nationwide search. Yes. And I take it there was a lot of interest. There, it was incredible. They had more than 100 applicants, yeah. To be the, exec- all qualified. To yeah. Be the executive director, 100 qualified applicants to yeah. be the executive director of the Eric Carle Museum of Picture Book Art, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Eric Hall Museum was 
I remember it as an idea yep. that Eric Carl had. And he said, I'll raise some money and we'll have a museum of picture book art. And a number of people rolled their eyes and said, seriously, That's crazy. a museum of picture book art? Are you kidding me? Yep. And now it is a really substantial national organization. What's happened since Eric first thought of this until today? Why has the world changed? How has the museum changed the world? Oh, thank you, Bill. Um, well, maybe I'll let Jen give her perspective, too, on this. My feeling is that, um, that this is art and literature that brings people together. It brings generations together. It's a way to introduce children to art and literature, to introduce them to the museum experience. I think it was one of those ideas whose time had come, and people didn't recognize how much they needed it. Uh, we also have been able to really expand our our reputation by uh, with a really large and interesting traveling exhibition program, which I've talked about before on this show, where we had exhibitions at museums much larger than the Carl, who also were excited about bringing in this illustration and showing how important it is, how formative it is for children, and how exciting it is for adults to be able to experience it. So we sort of took off from that point, I think. I, let me turn, indeed, to the new executive director, Jennifer Shantz, and share with you, Jennifer, uh, my perspective from the grandparent point of view, uh -huh. <laughs> which is that the Aram Carl Museum is the place Maybe butterflies that's in South Deerfield. That is a sport, sporting <laughs> chance as one of the nominees. But the Eric Carl Museum is like the place to go because it is so interactive, so accessible, so available, so much fun for kids and their parents or grandparents. And I think the Carl Museum as a community resource is something that makes it exceptional, uh, an exceptional institution as well as its national organization and the national reputation and its uh, uh, exhibits and all of that that uh, uh, we've just been hearing about from Alex Kennedy. Tell us your vision for the Carl. Well, I have to say, and thank you for inviting me to the show. I'm so happy to be here. And I, I, I have to say that I, I wanted to join when I, to me, picture books really have been central to my life. I uh, really in a way, my, my grandmother was librarian, my mother was a reading specialist, and so picture books were something that was just, we always, uh, we always shared as a family. And um, when I was invited to join uh, the Eric Carle Museum, I really jumped at the chance because I realized that at this moment, uh, picture book art and art in general is more important than ever because picture book art is a way to promote tolerance and understanding. A picture can be read in so many different ways, uh, and it allows people to think about complicated issues and discuss them um, in in a way that um, the children can understand. Uh, and in addition, the museum not only um, is it about picture book art, but it is about community building, and we offer programming um, and lectures and community events uh, for for the local community, but also um, virtually. Um, and so I think that our reach is beyond national. It's actually, it's international. Uh, and so it was a really exciting opportunity for me to come and, and think about what, what do we want to be? What, who are we now? And what can we be uh, in the near future and in the next 20 years? Stay with what the Carl presents, if you would, for just a moment, because I am struck by how picture book art, which we think of and you describe as being intended for children, speaks to adults 
there's nothing childlike or childish uh, about going to the Eric Carl and watching this and seeing this extraordinary art. So tell us how this intergenerational aspect of picture book art works. Why does it work? Well, I think in a way, if you think about it, picture book is picture book art is the art that we first fell in love with, uh, and that we grew up with, and that we then share with our children, and that we then share with our grandchildren, and um, and so I think back to my formative years of falling in love with Curious George, uh, who was you know a character that I grew up with, and uh, and and, I you, <laughs> and lo, these many years later, you're still in I, love with I'm Curious still in George. love with Curious George, yes, um, and so I think that it becomes a, a way for uh, multi generations to connect. Um, and share uh, share a love, and and also to to think about creating art. I mean, I think that the museum itself, if you walk into our art studio, it allows children, adults, grandparents, parents to play um, and connect in a way that they maybe don't have a chance to do so uh, when they're at work or when they're busy, if they're on their phones. This this allows uh, the institution allows people to to enter and be themselves and think and and play in a new way. Okay, this this may be on the list of top worst questions I've asked, but <laughs> we're going to try anyway. The Carl is, as I've noted, a spectacular institution and a spectacular community resource. How do you, as the new executive director, say, okay, I'm going to improve on that <laughs> somehow? What's the vision? How do you take this over? I mean, I think this is actually uh, kind of tricky in some ways. Well, I have very, very big shoes to fill. I have to say Alex Kennedy has been, she's been an amazing leader. She is an amazing person. And we have been overlapping for the past few months. And, uh, and the transition has been incredibly eye-opening. And, uh, but I, I do think that we can think about what, what can we be next. Um, and what I would love to think about is the way to uh, improve upon what we've already done and become the thought leader of picture book art in the world. Um, we could deepen scholarship about the art form itself, continue to elevate the art form, and to become a center, not only for illustrators, but for, um, for artists and scholars. Um, and so how we do that, where we go from here, uh, it will be a process. You know, we'll have to kick off a strategic planning process. Why don't you start with a hungry Alex Kennedy <laughs> Have her glasses, her earrings. <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> Such a shame it's radio, really. <laughs> we will be back with Alex Kennedy and Jennifer Shantz right after this. <laughs> Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Your phone is a radio. Your computer is a radio. Your smart speaker is a radio. And your radio is still a radio. You can listen to WHMP on all your devices and on 101.5 and 1400 WHMP.
It's time to put your garden and landscape to sleep for the winter, but don't forget to add a warm blanket of mulch in November. Weinzig Nursery has mulch by the bag or truckload. Mulch protects your plants from the bitter cold by trapping air above the soil. Mulch adds nutrients and keeps the soil from drying out during freeze and thaw cycles. Add mulch around young perennials, trees, and shrubs to insulate roots. Around evergreens to keep them moist and green. Visit Weinzig Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley or at WeinzigNursery.com. We are the growers. Come to the source. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are back with Jennifer Jen Shans and Alexander Alex Kennedy. Um, I mean, this sister act, really, too much. <laughs> Alex, of course, is the longtime and now transition executive director of the Eric Carl Museum. And Jen Shans is the new executive director of the Eric Carl. I would like to know what is in the immediate future for the Carl. So either one of you, or Alex or Jen. Um, well, I'll go first. Uh, okay. just to, for exhibitions, be sure to get in and see the exhibition Horse Tales, which explores the art of horse books for children before it closes on December 31st. We have a terrific exhibition called Environmental Eric Carl, which includes the collages from a series of endangered animal posters Eric created in the 1970s. Kid in a Candy Store opens November 18th and focuses on picture books created by the legendary graphic designer Seymour Quast, who was one of the founders of Pushpin Studios. He and his partners created so many graphics we all know and love today, and he is 90 now. He's still continuing to create art, so it should be a great, great exhibition. I'd like to know about per the permanent exhibitions and the permanent collection, and what I was struck by in the evening I was up at Eric Carl's uh, studio with some friends, and I saw Eric take tissue paper and create a, 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 just this amazing piece of art. It was just extraordinary. There were just a few pieces of tissue paper. He cut them, this and that, and he used a, a, a knife, exactly. an exacto yeah. knife, and put them together. And then, wow, it's like magic, voila. Yeah. But it's tissue paper. It's really fragile. How do you keep it safe, and how often do we get to see Eric's work? Well, we have rotating exhibits of Eric's work. Eric's work is always on display, and we rotate the exhibitions at least every six months. Six months. Uh, and we store all of his works, uh, as well as uh, 3,000 other works. So in total, we have about 11,000 works um, in our storage facility, which is climate-controlled uh, in carefully archival uh, boxes. And you know, it, we have a dedicated reg registrarial and collections team 
um, that make sure that we will preserve these collections for generations to come. And do collectors donate to the Carl? Do you purchase them? How do you put this uh, collection together and keep it uh, as, as this uh, ra rather extraordinary a resource for artists across the world, as you say. Yeah, well, we have a collection of over 250 artists who have donated or um, who have donated their items to us. We also, on occasion, do purchase uh, collection items, but in general, we've been very, very lucky that people and artists wish to have their collections at the Carl. Well, uh, Jennifer Jen Chance, I late in welcoming you to the Valley, as I thought hundreds and hundreds of people have done so far. Can you tell us a bit about your background and uh, I'm sure you're going to tell us about the opportunity, but how you came to be the executive director and come and live in this wonderful valley. Yeah, well, so I, I usually tell people that at my core, I'm, I'm a musician. I'm a classical musician, and I studied uh, flute and piccolo at the Juilliard Pre-College. And so art... Uh, of, cor of course you did. <laughs> uh, what the valley needed, another overachiever. Okay, got it. <laughs> So, yeah, so I grew up with New York City as my backyard, uh, wandering through museums and through cultural institutions. Uh, then I went to college and law school. I became an attorney. I worked uh, at a big firm at the U.S. Attorney's Office and then left to become the general counsel at the New York Historical Society, where I was a senior leader for 13 years and where I met Alex Kennedy and the Carl. I left there to become the executive director at the Library for the Performing Arts and, uh, and then when, um, when this opportunity opened up to live in the Pioneer Valley and combine my interests of love of books and art, libraries and museums, I jumped at the chance to come. Okay, so I'm very interested in this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, always always uh, uh, want to hear the story of recovering attorneys. You sort of, <laughs> along the way here, uh, as a, a classically trained musician, you picked up a law degree, went to look, work for some law firms, and then became one of the distinguished uh, uh, curators uh, in, in the United States. Uh, I, I feel so <laughs> insignificant. It's okay, Buzz. We're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have therapy right after the show, promise. We'll, bo we'll both attend. We'll share the therapist. Really, recovering attorney, why? How? <laughs> well, um, so... When I joined the Historical Society as its first general counsel, you know, I... Historical really, Society of New York? The, yeah, the New York Historical Society. Uh, I had no idea what how to run a museum, but as I, like, I worked for a wonderful CEO, Louise Mirror, and over the 13 years, I realized that I really loved running the museum more than I loved practicing law. And so eventually, I ended up letting... We hired a new general counsel, and so I ended up just being much more involved in the day-to-day -day operations uh, and so when I went to the Library for the Performing Arts, I was the executive director and, and left my legal life behind. I have nothing against attorneys, and I, and I loved practicing law. And I that think was a mild endorsement, <laughs> Buzz. In case, in case you're wondering what she was really saying, she, we're okay. It's okay. Kind she, of. She had me at Piccolo. <laughs> but I think that be, being a lawyer has helped, uh, helps think critically. I think you're able to process large amounts of information at a time, at one time. And I think that um, that it's part of who I am. But I really do love um, being involved with a museum and, and running the day-to-day -day operations and developing vision and, and strategies. Anyway. That's I said to the senior team at the museum, think how much money we're going to save by having somebody who actually knows how to read all these contracts on staff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I can, I can, I can see Jen now just running for the door. Let me out of here. I don't want to go back to reading contracts. That's a terrible idea. Well, it's going to give rise to this whole slew of graphic contracts. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Okay. 
a year from now, when you're back here in the studio, what would you like to be able to tell us has changed or you've accomplished? Well, I would love to tell you that we've launched our strategic planning process uh, and that we're beginning to plan for the next 20 years, that I've been able to connect with community members to better understand how the Carl serves their needs and what we can do better in the future. And I would love to um, to begin expanding our, our international reach to build on what Alex Kennedy has done in the past. And I'm so grateful to be here. Well... We are grateful that you are here. We are grateful grateful for Alex Kennedy and the leadership that she's provided for the entire staff at the Carl. You all are amazing. This is an extraordinary museum and community resource, and we thank you both for all you bring to all of us. Thank you. Thank you for all. Thank you, Jen Chance. Thank you, Alex Kennedy. Pets and people—they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD HMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And I want you to know, Buzz, that one time we had in the studio the expandable brass band. I like a lot of members of the expandable brass band. And uh, how to say this, we shut down the entire Northampton radio group for that period of time because it was the loudest thing that had ever happened in the studio. And while we're not exactly going to get to that this morning, we're going to be pretty close. Buzz, could you explain this to our listeners, please? I can explain it because the sound that's going to be emanating from this studio is going to be incredible sound. It always is. There is going to be a concert Sunday, uh, November 12th at 3 o'clock at the All Souls Church. It is going to be a benefit for the iconic Stone Soup Cafe, which is just such an incredible institution that serves so many people uh, and deserves our support. And uh, sort of one member of the Forest Avenue group, which is going to be performing at that concert, is another icon regionally, Evelyn McDougall. Evelyn, in the, in the, um, in, in the studio with us. Hello, Evelyn. Hello, good morning, Buzz and Bill. It's great to be back. And when you said the Old Souls Church, the Old Souls Church in Greenfield? In Greenfield. Greenfield, okay. Massachusetts, yes. So tell us a little bit about the concert, why you're involved, how you're involved, and who we have in the studio here. All right. Well, speaking of icons, I'll get to that in a moment. But yeah, you know, uh, thank you for, for giving the thumbs up to Stone Soup, because like so many of us, when the pandemic hit, they had to totally reinvent themselves. And they did incredibly well to the point where they uh, inspired a lot of the rest of us to like, okay, let's let's go to plan B. Oh, C, plan D. All right, whatever's coming down the pike. 
and they have expanded and they have um, just kind of like a phoenix rising from some weird ashes have, have just um, captured my heart again and again. So hence, uh, we're doing this benefit. In the studio, we have, well, who we don't have, boo-hoo, <clears throat> Andy Van Ash, our guitarist, has fractured his wrist. Forest Avenue is very sad about that. However, very sad, very sad. but we still have... On the mandolin, we have Dan Frank, and yay, another Ashfield resident. You bet. And if folks come to the show on Sunday, they will also hear Dan play the hurdy-gurdy, and he will even do a little hurdy-gurdy tutorial. So there's that. On my left is Could you Desiree. stop there for one second? The hurdy-gurdy <laughs> is a thing? It's a thing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an instrument? Hurdy-gurdy is uh, originally an 11th century French instrument that has been, uh, that has an entire diaspora through uh, Europe. It's, it's what century? 11th century originally. 11th century <laughs> instrument. French, it's called a viola roue, or circular fiddle, because it actually works on the same principles as a violin, but it uses a wheel instead of a bow. Wow. You gotta see it. Come check it out. Well, uh, the words "hurdy gurdy" they are not French. Are they, they are not French. English being the weird language that it is, um, there are actually two instruments in English called a hurdy gurdy. The French call the other one the orgue de barbarie or barbarian organ. We think Ooh. that the French have opinions. Well, I, uh, this leads us to two questions, and we want to get back to the other incredible musicians that are here in the studio and the music that they're going to play. But um, I have two questions. Number one, how did you get involved in the hurdy-gurdy? And number two, what's the phone number of your therapist? <laughs> <laughs> and did, I'm when, currently and when without you, a therapist. And when you, when you started doing this, did your parents know? We don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> and the way I found out about the hurdy-curdy is by knowing bad people. There's a wonderful <laughs> band from uh, Quebec called Levant de Nord that I had the misfortune of meeting and, and meeting their hurdy-gurdy player, Nicolas Boulouris, who um, uh, brought me to this juncture in my life. And how old were you? Um, I've been playing for around 15 years. Wow. Dan, wow. Dan Frank, and he's, he's got a mandolin in his hands today, yeah. and he'll have a hurdy-gurdy in his hands on Yeah, Sunday. baby, yeah. And when I bring him into the schools with me, the kids don't want to look at me. They're like, Dan, Dan, hurdy-gurdy. <laughs> <laughs> also in the studio is our blushing new bride, Desiree Lowett, whose wedding we just played at recently, and she's holding her fiddle. And wearing a really cool outfit, I gotta say. Can't see that at home. But mm -hmm. but then speaking of icons, to my direct right, I have on the bass John Clark. But those of you who are fans of the jazz world will know John Clark as the preeminent French horn jazz player, basically in the world. And that, he does that is not, that's not basically hyperbolic. the thing. Yeah, Anybody no, no, no. who ever hears the name John <clears throat> Clark knows he is considered the greatest French horn jazz player player in the world. In the world, yeah. So students, go ahead and Google John Clark French horn, and it will blow your mind. And oh, oh, look, he just happened to bring his French horn with him. How convenient. Because he knows for 40 years I've loved his music. Yeah. I have it uh, yeah. at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it's on vinyl, and I don't have a vinyl player We anymore. can update you, oh, Buzz. We can update you. We have CDs now. All right, so... We want to hear some music. We want to get a taste of what's going to be happening at the Benefit Concert for Stone Soup Cafe Sunday, November 12th at 3 o'clock at the All Souls Church in Greenfield. Yeah. 
Let so, us hear. All right. And keeping it local, this first tune we're going to do is by Keith Murphy, who lives in Brattleboro, and is another icon. So... So, I just want to ask our engineer, how's that playing? Are we here in the bass? Or we, all right, yeah. And I love how you communicate to your bandmates with your leg. Oh, I do, with my leg, with my Is stripy socks. That's what a fiddler does? <laughs> Is this the same group that's going to be performing on Sunday? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, so we're, 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 st we're still adjusting to the fact that uh, our guitarist broke his wrist. Um, but yeah, so we may have one more player with us. We're not sure, but yeah, we'll all be there. And oh, oh, I should say, the openers are a fabulous chorus named Fiery Hope, formerly known as the Amandla Chorus. Oh, which I actually happen to direct. So, <laughs> <laughs> and you have for how many years? Lucky me, uh, thirty-five and a half. Really, just considered such. A, it's one of the assets of the uh, of this region that. Uh, so much of us just value so much. Thank so. you. And I'm really thrilled because we have a bunch of new singers who will be there. We um, have a new generation bubbling we, yeah, up. Yeah, they're coming up. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So And what will they be performing? They will be doing a number of songs from around the world. So there's a lot to uh, be concerned about, as you know, in the world. And so we are working double time to just try to think of what could we sing to bring awareness, comfort, grief welcoming celebration it's it's a tough it's a tough time to be human and we want to we want to sing about that I, I just want to take this opportunity Evelina I just I just think the world of you and your colleagues but you always find a way of weaving uh, your passion about music to your passion about uh, social justice and, do and it. it's just uh, it makes Music is always meaningful, but it brings a different kind of meaning to the music yeah. that you generate. Buzz, I don't know how else to be on the planet, you know? So there's that. Um, 
So tell us about Forest Avenue. Where'd that name come from? Forest Avenue is is the street that I live on in Greenfield when I'm in Greenfield. And um, we were just, uh, I don't know, we were hosing around one night in in my apartment. And we're like, oh, we've got a gig coming up. How about Forest Avenue? It was just that simple. But uh, we've been together about four years, and we literally got each other through the pandemic. It was, it was pretty amazing. So... But right now, we would like to do Fox Hunters Jig. <coughs> a jig. Batten down the hatches. Uh, let's not go crazy. This is a 9-8 for those of you keeping score at home. Okay, so the last one was a waltz. This is a 9-8. This is a 9 eighth. It's in 9 eighths time? Is that what yeah, you're saying? Oh my God! That is that good for the hurly burly girly <laughs> Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, whatever it is you play. <laughs> Fairport convention lovers out there, this was a there's a um, fox hunters jig with uh, in the fair. I mean, I think it's Legion Leaf. I'm not sure. Andy and I love Fairport convention so much. So anyway, speaking of vinyl, I still <laughs> see there. I yeah. still see the yeah, cards. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Des. Yeah. <laughs> Still my feet. Oh, God, that's fun. The, the jig is up, I guess. <laughs> that is, that's just so fun. We are, we're here with Dan Frank on the mandolin and uh, Desi Lowett on the fiddle and uh, John Clark 
on the bass and Eveline McDougal on the fiddle as well. They are Forest Avenue. They will be performing at 3 o'clock on Sunday, November 12th. This benefit concert for the incredible Stone Soup Cafe. We'll be right back and get another taste right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. The person you're sleeping with, you know things about them that maybe you shouldn't know. Like, they got up last night at three and went down to the kitchen. How do you know? You have one of those mattresses that, well, let's just say you know things you really don't need to know. Sleep on a Theralux mattress from Talon Furniture. Wait, Theralux? What happened? All Talon Furniture ever talks about is therapeutic mattresses. Well, Theralux is simply Therapeutic's high-end mattress. What makes it high-end? It's a cooling mattress. If you're not sure what cooling mattresses are, we'll show you. A Theralux mattress has a 20-year warranty and a really high coil count, which means if the person you're sleeping with is tossing and turning or gets up at 3 a.m., you won't even know. And that's the way a good night's sleep ought to go, right? Therapeutic, and now Theralux. Come to Talon Furniture, just down the hill from Amherst College. Just don't come at 3 a.m. We'll be sound asleep. My name is Jenny Papa George. I'm the Director of Planned Giving at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Having a strong community health system is vital to the health and well-being of our community. At Cooley, we're grateful to the community that supports us through your kind words, generous gifts, and legacy plans. Without you, we wouldn't have a thriving community hospital that's here for you and the people you love. I welcome you to get in touch to talk about what Cooley means to you. Visit us at cooleydickinson.org slash giving. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Well, this is the voice of Buzz Eisenberg when he's surrounded by talent that he's envious of. So uh, there's incredible musicians here. They are Forest Avenue. They are Evelyn McDougall and Desi Lowett and Dan Frank and John Clark. And uh, Evelyn, I, I just want to... Ask, John was playing the bass in the previous uh, two songs that you that you played, but um, he's got a French horn in his hand, which is how I came to know him yeah. as a f- jazz Me too. Uh, horn player. Yeah, yeah. So um, just a little bit of the origin story. John and I met about a year ago. We were both playing. We were each playing at a memorial service for a fabulous fellow named Les Patlove, who oh, was yes. a he French was horn student indeed. of John's. And uh, I was asked to play a whole bunch of things on viola, violin, accordion, blah, blah, blah. And then I, I was playing Autumn Leaves solo on the violin, which is a little bit like swinging in the breeze there, solo. And then I heard this sound from I don't know where, and it was divine. And I turned around, and here's this fellow playing the horn, because he was up next after me. 
And that was how we met. And then I, you know, we started talking at the reception. We end up knowing a lot of the same people. And so we started playing together, et cetera. And, uh, and forest, doing forestry together as well. But that's another story. But so he has his French horn here. And, uh, you know, it's, it is really not hyperbolic to say that John is, you know, really about the finest player in the world in this genre of jazz. But he also plays Scandinavian things on the horn and Mozart and, you know, what, whatever. Well, we could talk about John's talent, but he's also just such an innovator because you usually associate the divine sound, as you said, mm -hmm. the heavenly sound that comes out of uh, a French horn with classical music. But in fact, right. it, uh, John somehow adapts it to whatever the needs are. Yeah, and when I shared with John that, so I grew up in a completely musical family, and when it was time for me to take up my second instrument at age seven, that's how it worked in my house, uh, you needed to know two languages by age four, and second instrument came up at... I love you, I hate you, I love you, I hate you. <laughs> and my dad uh, brought me into the studio in our house, and he said, hey, I have a present for you, and he opened up a French horn case, and I was like, nah, I'm going to play the violin. Wow. So to, to meet a horn player and be like, yeah. John, would you grace us with some sound? Please. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> How about for a, an aging, uh, fast aging uh, jazz lover? Yeah. Some people say that I'm a specialist in bebop and as far as, you know, different styles of jazz. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do love it. And uh, I'd like to play a little bit of one of my most favorite, if not my very most favorite, by Bud Powell. This is called Crazyology. And I apologize for my, normally this would be with piano, bass, and drums, right? Like hardly ever do we just play these tunes solo, but I couldn't fit them into my phone. I know there's a way of <laughs> having a rhythm section in your phone, but I, I don't know how to do it. Slow and then fast, maybe, if everything goes well. <laughs> Makes us all dizzy, if you know what I mean. The Wren. Me too. So, thank you, John Clark. Would you mind strapping that electric bass back on so not we could all, do The Wren? So this is uh, a tune that's traditionally Breton. So we're kind of taking a little tour here. And we've got, we'll just do this two times through yeah. the run. Do you need to switch places with me? I'm OK. Thank you. 
Wow. Evelyn McDougal and John Clark and Desi Lowett and Hurdy Gurdy Man Dan Frank. So the concert's going to be on Sunday at 3 o'clock at the All Souls Church in Greenfield. That's right. It's a benefit concert for the Stone Soup Cafe. Stone Soup, which does so much for this community and each of us who are there. Evelyn. Buzz, I want to say that given the, the, the tenor of the times with people struggling more and more just to buy groceries, right, this concert, nobody is turned away. Well, that's always true for my concerts. Nobody is turned away for insufficient funds. So we have a sliding scale suggested donation of $5 to $25. But if you got $1, that's enough dollars to get into this show. If you got $0, that's enough dollars. Even at $25 to hear what we just heard. I know. I got to say, thank it's you. It's really thank incredible. You. And before you, who's going to open? Fiery Hope, formerly known as the Amand Chorus, doing songs of peace and justice from around the world. Oh, man. What a day Sunday should be. Yeah. Thank each of you for coming. Thanks for what you do. Thanks for coming in today. And why don't you just Can play us out? One more? All right. Play us out to a break. This is called Through the Gates. It's also known as The Good One, because when we play it for audiences, they go, oh, do the good one. <laughs> <laughs> is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Ginny DeSorger will be the next mayor of Greenfield after voters overwhelmingly chose to support her over incumbent mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner in election. The defining issues of DeSorger's campaign were restoring funding to the school district and addressing racism and mismanagement of the police department. Campaign volunteer and Greenfield political activist Doug Selwyn. The current mayor and city council have really been at odds. I mean, it's been the mayor versus the city council. And my guess is where Ginny's going to start is building on the relationships that she has had with the city council as one of them and really trying to figure out how do we do this together rather than having an adversarial relationship. Disorger received 74% of the vote, winning every city district. She also had the support of most city councilors. Northampton City Councilors Marissa Elkins and Garrick Perry emerged from Tuesday's election victorious in their bids for at-large city council seats over David Murphy and Roy Martin. Many of the ward-based city council races were uncontested, and all those on the ballot were elected. Incumbent at-large school committee members Gwen Agna and Aileen Davis won re-election by a large margin. Incumbents also held on to power in Amherst, where several town councilor positions were up for grabs. At-large town councilors Andrew Steinberg, Alicia Walker, and Mandy Haneke all won re-election. 
The school committee will be seeing some fresh faces as well with Sarah Marshall, Deborah Leonard, and Bridget Hines. Mostly sunny and breezy today, a high of 42 to 46. Clouds quickly increase tonight with a light wintry mix developing after 11 o'clock, an overnight low of 26 to 32. Could be a little slippery here Thursday morning with a light wintry mix of sleet, snow, and freezing rain. We'll warm up above freezing by mid-Thursday morning with scattered rain showers for the rest of the day, a high of 42 to 46, dry and low 50s on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready-to-go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground-up flour and grains, stone-milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. Where is your pain? In your knees, hips, your back? Don't let it sideline you any longer, and don't let them tell you surgery is your only option. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, restoring and repairing damaged joint tissue the natural way, using healing properties from your own body to bring you lasting relief with no drugs and no downtime. QC Kinetics is trusted by patients all over America with 150 clinics nationwide. Get started now so you can live big in 2024. Talk about a great use of your FSA and HSA. Put them to work getting you the relief you need so badly. And again, there are no drugs, no downtime, and no surgery. Call QC Kinetics today for a free consultation. Let their medical professionals give you a better path towards that pain-free life. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. You know, sometimes the world just seems ablaze with um, bad news. Um, but there are some people who uh, are just heroic in their attempts to to change that. Uh, one of them, the nexus to UMass, is uh, just so great, uh, Daniel Ellsberg. And uh, in large part, we have Chris Appy, Professor Appy, to thank for that. Uh, Chris, we have a really special event that's coming up. Can First of all, tell us a little bit about the Ellsberg Collection um, for those of us who might not know about it, and then tell us what's coming up. Yeah, thanks, Buzz. UMass was lucky enough in 2019 to acquire the papers of the legendary whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, who uh, sabotaged his career and risked a life in prison uh, for releasing to the public and the press a 7,000-page secret history of the Vietnam War. We throw the word hero around lightly, but this truly is hero. Yeah, he released the Pentagon Papers and then for the next remainder of his long life, which unfortunately ended last summer at 92, more than 50 years of 
nonviolent activism uh, in pursuit of uh, more democratic foreign policy and into nuclear weapons and a whole host of issues. So building on the momentum of those papers, UMass embarked on a whole series of projects and most recently an effort to build a permanent Ellsberg Institute for Peace and Democracy. So we have lots of programming this year. Uh, the title of our focus is the Whistleblower Project, uh, a year-long series on public interest truth-telling. And we're really looking forward to an event next Wednesday night on campus at 7 p.m. where we'll have the second annual Ellsberg Lecture given by the extraordinary writer, uh, journalist, and activist Norman uh, Solomon. Uh, for details um, of the place, it's going to be uh, in the Integrative Learning Center on campus, which is just behind the Student Union, if you park at Central Parking, in, in room 9151. It'll also be um, streamed on Zoom. So uh, for details, go to our website. It's uh, simple. It's just eipad.org. E-I-P-A-D. Dot org. And just click on events. And I just want to just throw in, Professor uh, Chris Appy, you are an historian. Uh, what is your role in all of what you just described? Um, well, I'm the director of the Ellsberg Initiative and uh, sort of oversee the, the, the programming, and, uh, but continue to, to teach. And this semester I'm teaching a course on the American War in Vietnam. Um, so, yeah. Another one of our heroes. And speaking of heroes... Um, your second lecturer is a pretty special person, Norman Solomon. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Norman before we introduce him? Okay, well, he can speak for himself, but he's had a long and distinguished uh, career. Uh, he's not only written 12 books, uh, he has been a founder of many really important uh, media watchdog groups and uh, social activism groups and is connected all over the country with uh, activists and uh, and policymakers as as well. So uh, his most recent book is called um, "War Made Invisible." I'm sure he'll he'll tell us a bit about that. That that's I think going to be at the heart of the lecture he gives next Wednesday night. And let me interject, if I might, that Chris Appy himself is an author of a superb book on Vietnam titled "American Reckoning: The Vietnam War and Our National Identity." It's really really spellbinding. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. We, uh, we have, these are a couple of very special people we're speaking with. Norman Solomon from uh, California. First of all, thank you for getting up so early. <laughs> a pleasure. And secondly, tell us about your, before we, we turn to next Wednesday and uh, your lecture as the second Ellsberg lecture, I, I want to ask you about your new book. Tell us a little bit about it. War Made Invisible is really a chronicle of what's happened, especially in the last... 22 years or so after the launch of the so-called War on Terror, where paradoxically, and maybe even more so in recent weeks, on the one hand, people's TVs and front pages are filled with news about war. And at the same time, we really are seeing very little, sometimes nothing of the human reality of war. So it's sort of a, a split screen, or you might say a split between what the U.S. news media routinely tell us and don't tell us on the one hand, and what people are enduring and experiencing. And for that matter, even here in 2023, people in Vietnam are still experiencing the aftermath of unexploded ordinances, 
of uh, Agent Orange, of their loss of loved ones, completely unacknowledged by the US media and politics, or in real time in Ukraine, and also now in Gaza, the suffering that, especially in Gaza, what a change from the coverage in Ukraine where civilians were front and center in our media of the suffering, the ideological and nationalistic focus and absence of focus is just so stunning if we really look at it. And so we have a major aspect that I endeavor to get at in the book, War Made Invisible, where some human realities of what is now going on in Gaza get pretty short shrift from US media and on Capitol Hill. Norman, what does Ellsberg mean to you? He means someone who showed that we can, and in human terms, must take risks in order to not only get rid of the concept of other people who are less important than others, which is a very morally and politically corrosive tacit assumption, but also that it has to do with who we are as human beings. It's not just about other people. Are we going to be passive? Are we going to be spectators and defer to a destructive national and world order? Or are we going to be someone better than that? And so Dan Ellsberg, he personified that. He never preached, but he showed. And he was willing and able to confront the war makers and the nuclear war planners in ways that certainly live well on past his own life. He continues to to spur us onward with his uh, his work, especially, I think, in a lasting way in print, his book, The Doomsday Machine, which is extremely powerful and appropriately upsetting. Um, boy, I don't know how to top that, but <laughs> let me ask you this, Professor Chris Happy. How did you land on Norman Solomon as this very distinguished honor of being the second Ellsberg lecturer? Well, I knew that uh, Norman had been a very uh, close friend of Dan's and someone he really not only respected but had actually collaborated with on a number of um, articles. And uh, based on that, I started to read his book, and I, so I thought he would be you know, an ideal candidate to give the second uh, Ellsberg lecture, and he also, his interest uh, coincide with uh, our own mission at, uh, in, in this institute, which is to, uh, you know, to raise public understanding, uh, scholarship, and activism in support of democratic and sustainable alternatives to militarism, authoritarianism, and um, environmental degradation. It is so inspiring. Norman Solomon, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, and you, Chris Appy, and your work is just uh, its inspirational. Um, one more time before we break, let us go out with a reminder of what's happening Wednesday and how we could get tuned into it. Uh, next Wednesday, November 15th uh, at 7 p.m. on campus at the University of Massachusetts, uh, Norman Solomon will be giving a lecture called The Madness of Militarism. You can get details on our website, which is eipad.org. Just click on events. eipad.org. 
So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here And I won't feel the flowing of the time when I'm gone All the pleasures of love will not be mine when I'm gone My pen won't pour a lyric line when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Power to the people. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3 right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime. Hi, I'm Martha Stewart. Every year, more than 4 million pets enter shelters here in the United States. My friends at American Humane have been helping animals since 1877. The goal is to ensure that pets have a safe shelter, especially during natural disasters. Adopting a shelter pet allows shelters to help more animals awaiting care. Please consider adopting today and take some time to learn more about American Humane's other work at AmericanHumane.org. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We are speaking to Professor Chris Appy of UMass, historian and scholar, we're talking also with author, also scholar, Norman Solomon, who will be the second annual Ellsberg Lecturer on Wednesday. To get more information about it, you go to eipad.org. You could find more, out more about Wednesday's um, uh, extraordinary event as the second annual Ellsberg Lecturer that Norman Solomon will be. Bill, you had a question for Norman. Yeah, I, I do. I have a question for Norman Solomon. And the same question for Chris Appy, Professor Chris Appy, is director of the Ellsberg Initiative at UMass. I'd like to ask you, I'll start with you if I might, Norman Solomon. With regard to Gaza and Israel and the war today, what do you think Ellsberg would say? Without, of course, uh, you know, presuming to <clears throat> speak for him then or now, uh, Dan was adamant about the reality that there are diplomatic channels that can and must be pursued 
rather than people killing each other. When the United States, after tremendous media and political manipulation, began to attack uh, Iraq in March of 2003 in so-called, what was it called, shock and awe, Dan said he didn't want to be on the outside. It was very much like Henry David Thoreau, what are you doing out there? He intentionally did civil disobedience so he wouldn't have to watch the onslaught on TV he, outside. He watched it from inside a jail cell. And Dan, I have no doubt, would completely condemn all of the killing by first Hamas in the last weeks and adamantly ongoing, he would condemn the bombing of Gaza, which has taken now, according to Save the Children organization, um, several thousand children's lives, as well as other civilians. No doubt Dan would be out there protesting and denouncing this US-supported genocide going on in Gaza. I have a question as a follow-up, if I might, please. Uh, Hamas says, as its stated goal is to eliminate the country of Israel and to drive the Jews out, um, how would Daniel Ellsberg suggest negotiating or not with Hamas? Well, I want to speak for myself here okay. uh, because it's a great question and a crucial one. History doesn't begin when the news media decide that it's news now. And we have such a strong push from media and politics of this country to proceed as though there was no history that we don't want to engage with or deal with. We've had for decades now the, by any other name, oppression of 2 million people in Gaza as well as the West Bank. And so when we actually look at the history, it didn't, we're sort of in a, a Greek play here from <coughs> thousands of years ago, revenge and revenge and revenge. And one of the aspects of US news media and politics is we're extremely selective about even what is retaliation. Um, I would, and certainly at rootsaction.org where I work, we condemn without reservation, without any qualification or uh, mitigation. We condemn what Hamas did on October 7th, and we condemn now the much larger scale killing of civilians by the US-backed Israeli government. And so if we are gonna look at a word like retaliation, that is an arbitrary word that is used. And if we're gonna go deeper, terrorism is an arbitrary word to be used because what the United States is backing now in the, the Israeli actions on Gaza is uh, terrorism. There are 2 million people who for several weeks now have been terrorized from the air, now also from the ground. Uh, and they are being not only terrorized, but many thousands of them ongoing, uh, being by any other name murdered by the Israeli forces with a commander who knows full well that so many civilians will continue to be killed. So what Israel should be doing uh, basically is ending its occupation. It's illegal, according to the UN Security Council, occupation 
of the West Bank and Gaza and what it could be doing in this crisis rather than continuing to ratchet up the mass killing is to insist that these occupations will end. That's a starter. Norman Solomon, leave aside for a moment some of the history. I'd like to know your perspective, and I'd like to know Chris Appy's perspective as well. What was Hamas trying to achieve with its attack? I personally think it was a terrorist attack. It was terrorizing uh, civilians. It was killing innocent people and non-combatants. But of course, Hamas says every Jew in Israel is a combatant, so we can kill them all. And that's Hamas's position, as I understand it. I'd like your perspective on what was Hamas trying to accomplish with this attack? Well, that perspective you just mentioned sort of mirrors the the operative Israeli perspective is that every Palestinian is a potential terrorist. That's the extreme right wing, which is part of the government, says even the children are potential terrorists. By the way, that's uh, at Nuremberg, that's what some of the high Nazi officials said about Jewish children. Yeah, they're children, but they're going to grow up and be Jewish adults, so we need to kill them. The very mirror going on. I can't do anything but, of course, speculate as to what was in the minds of Hamas leaders who ordered the attack on October 7th. It was a horrific chess move. It was a response to decades of increasing hopelessness in what's been called an open, the world's largest open-air prison, not a bad description. I believe they thought, among other things, that the situation was increasingly hopeless, that Palestinian people were being choked and killed and squeezed to death by uh, Israel's air-sea land blockade of access in and out uh, with the outside world. And so they did their own Machiavellian murderous chess move on October 7th. And now with much greater military power to kill and implementing to murder civilians, the Israeli government is doing something similar, but on a much larger and more protracted scale. Chris Appy, can you add to what Norman Sullivan was just talking about? Well, I think uh, Dan Ellsberg would say, and I agree, that the killing of civilians is by definition uh, an act of terror, whether it's carried out by a subnational group or a political party or a nuclear-armed state. It's terrorism, and um, you don't defeat terrorism with acts of terror. It almost invariably makes things worse. I don't know what Hamas was thinking, but maybe they were actually expecting and and hoping that uh, Israel would uh, overreact in this massive way and kill thousands of people, Um, now over 10,000 people. Um, There's no magical answer, but I think you've got to start by calling for an end to the bombing. I remember watching Dan Ellsberg being interviewed uh, about Israel. I think it was the second Infitada. I can't keep track. But, uh, he, and he, he, he said, actually, one Berg to another Berg, I identified with what Dan Ellsberg was talking about. He was saying that he uh, was raised uh, by parents who were Jewish and converted, I think, to a Christian science. Is that right? Correct. And and he was saying um, the portion of him that knows what Jews have been have had to endure for thousands of years 
was so hurt by what he was watching, but Israel's response was equally hurtful to him because he's first and foremost a citizen of the world. That, that was a very moving statement, um, and I, I think uh, sort of echoes what Norman is saying. I, I mean, it's such an intractable problem that we're facing here. Uh, other than what you just said, do you have any other reflections about what Israel's response should be to someone who, does, who doesn't think it should exist anymore, Chris Appy? Well, there are many divided political views in Israel, so uh, one hope we could have is that the people of Israel would uh, you know, overturn this re extreme right-wing government uh, and uh, really try to make peace and some solution in the region. We are just so lucky. Uh, so tell us again about the event Wednesday. Tell us about who our second uh, Ellsberg lecturer is going to be and how people can access it. Uh, author and activist Norman Solomon will be giving the second annual Ellsberg lecture next Wednesday, November 15th at 7 p.m. Uh, at UMass. To find out details, please go to our website, which is eipad.org, and just click on events. Is, uh, is there going to be a gathering place where people can watch Norman uh, other than just... Uh, oh, there'll be a big, big lecture hall. And uh, by the way, um, we'll hear some remarks from Dan Ellsberg's um, uh, oldest son, uh, Robert Ellsberg, at the, at the beginning. Just be uh, attending. Truly incredible. We're so lucky to have the Ellsberg Collection here. Um, so thank you so much, Norman Solomon, for being with us and be for being the second annual lecturer. And thank you, Chris Happy, for bringing it to our attention. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on Talk the Talk. We'll be back tomorrow. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, WHMP. Whatever the season, something fun is happening at the Hitchcock Center for the Environment. From home energy efficiency workshops to birding classes and nature walks, we have hands-on activities happening all year long. Whether you're 2 or 92, the Hitchcock Center has an opportunity for you to connect with our natural world. Come visit us at our new location, the Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 11.